0: Hello, I'm Brett Terpstra, and you're listening to Systematic. My guest this week is Aaron Mankey. He's the creator of The Lore Podcast in a small empire that's grown up around it. How's it going, Aaron?
1: Hey, Brett. I am doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I haven't talked to you
0: since 2016, and at that point, a lot had happened since the (laughs) last time I talked to you before that, and I feel like things have only exponentially grown for you since then. Things
1: are indeed busy, yes, and I like it that way. It's been really fun.
0: Yeah, so I I think we talked about this back in 2016, but when I first became aware of you, kind of cross paths with you, you were kind of tossing ideas against the wall with frictionless workflow stuff and kind of putting out things like index cards and whatnot. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you put out... Uh, a podcast that I don't think you had like strong a uh, strong inclination that it was going to change your life.
1: No, not at all.
0: And it it did.
1: It did. It really did. Yeah. I, t- I tell people when they ask me, you know, how did you start lore? I say, have you ever seen one of those detective movies where the you know the clever detective is in the library of this English manor and he sort of leans on a bookshelf and a door swings open because he leaned on the right thing? That's how I fell into this. I it was all. Complete happenstance. And I have just been making it up as I go ever since.
0: And then uh, Lore gained more and more popularity, eventually got optioned as an Amazon show. What the Lore specifically, we'll talk about some of your other shows soon, but like what other major avenues has Lore taken since then?
1: Shortly after the TV offers rolled in, I. I had a number of literary agents reach out. They're these mythical people that a lot of authors don't think actually exist because they're so hard to attain. And and I had a lot of them knocking on my door, which was super great. And so I I teamed up with one of them, sold a three book lore series to Penguin Random House. The first of the books came out the same, I think the same, it was the same month. It might have been the same week as the first season of the TV show. So it was sort of a big October 2017, I think, 17 and 18. I think we're, that was the, 2017 was the, was like the big month where everything landed. Yeah. yeah. And and then I don't really think of it as a spinoff, but I've taken lore on the road. You know, we've done Chad who composes music for the show. He's an amazing classical pianist. He's got an album out now that's just tearing up the charts in his category. He recorded it at Abbey Road. He's signed on with Decca Records, a legendary wow. record. Label. Yeah. He's the bomb. And we'll go on tour and do 15 or 20 cities across the country over the course of a few months. Just, you know, go out, do a few, come back home, recuperate, and do lore live in front of an audience of a a thousand or two people. It's always a really fun time.
0: That's amazing. So you started production company, I think is what you would call it, Grim and Mild?
1: Yeah. Yeah. About three years ago, was it three years ago, two and a half, iHeart Radio approached me. And they said, hey, we, we love what you do with lore and we want you to make more shows. And so what we want to do is we want to pay you for your services, but also provide you with production muscle and staff and people who can take your ideas and make them into shows. And the first thing we launched was a show called Cabinet of Curiosities, which is my love letter to Paul Harvey and the rest of the story and a little bit of uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not. And it comes out twice a week. Each episode has two tiny five-minute stories in it that are these little... You know, delightful, wonderful, curious vignettes about inventions or amazing people. And then after that, it's just been that's the same model for every show. And when I went to re-up that deal a year later or two years later, I guess it's been three because I just hit the year mark on Grim and Wild. Anyway, I needed a more of a I needed to hire people. I needed at the time I was doing cabinet with contractors and then Unobscured that was another show I brought on, and I was doing that with paid contractors. But I wanted to hire people and you know, give health insurance and all those benefits and have people on staff who could do other things too. So I started a production company to sort of be the umbrella for that expensive venture. And, and now everything is sort of bundled up under that umbrella that I guess it's a network in a sense uh, of grim and mild.
0: How big is your team now?
1: I have five paid staff members and I have another, I think three contractors who still, they'd rather just be contractors. They do it, you know, around a day job or things like that. I I think, you know, Harry Marks and he's floated in our circle for years. Harry writes cabinet for me. He's my, my main guy for cabinet. Yeah, and he does that around a full-time job. So there's no need to hire him and, and all that. Yeah, it's great. So yeah, the, the team grows as it needs to. And, and, you know, there's seasons for a lot of these shows and, and ebbs and flows. And so people can move around and, you know, we're developing other stuff and working on, on other shows that haven't come out yet. And it's exciting. We do team meetings every month, every every Monday and writer's rooms for different shows on a regular basis. It, it feels like a the production company. That's crazy. Like, I'm
0: just... I did not succeed at being independent. Like I recently took a a day job after Mm -hmm. a decade of doing my own version of throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks. And I feel like I am the typical story of people who try to make it independently. And you are the very atypical story of of independent success.
1: Yeah. I I, like, you know, I've said it already and I'll say it many times today, but I, I am making this up as I go. I, There was no manual to tell me what to do. It did help that I was running a small one-person design business for about seven years, but that just taught me about things like taxes and how to handle clients. But I did take a lot of those skills, you know, how to sell a logo to a a local plumber who doesn't necessarily think he needs one. To 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 going out to sponsors, you know, in those very early days, it was like me knocking on doors. I remember just a couple of months after Lore came out, and the, the numbers were screaming up and I thought, oh, it's getting to the point where I can go get advertisers, but I didn't know how to do it. So I just went to contact forms on websites for places like Squarespace or Casper and sent messages into their their customer service team and said, hey, I've got this show and here's its numbers. And I don't know who in your company to talk to, but could you point me that way? And they always would. And and it worked. And I started selling ads and, and I've continued to sell my own ads on Lore for the last six years.
0: That's a time suck in and of itself.
1: It sounds like it. My ad sales, I, I do it for the whole calendar year in one shot. I don't do like quarterly. Look, Laura's six years old. I'm beyond the point where I'm going to grow you know, exponentially from quarter to quarter. It's a steady show and that's fine. And it makes selling easy. So I can take a, a week out of my August or September and I can put together my numbers, put together my prices. I know that I'm going to put out like 28 episodes over the year, Every episode has three spots. So there's 84 spots I need to fill. And I just go out to the agencies that I have contacts with. And I say, here's my availability. It's first come, first serve. Here's the pricing. Let me know what dates you want, but hurry up because they're going fast. And they do. Within a week, I sell out the year. I dust my hands off and I move on to the next task.
0: So Must be nice.
1: It's been really great. It's, <laughs> You know, I'm grateful. There, When I launched Lore six years ago, there were, I don't know, maybe a quarter of a million podcasts out there. And there are over 2 million now. And granted, most of them don't have enough downloads to get sponsors, but there's more competition for ad money now than there used to be. So I'm grateful when I can sell out. I feel like companies,
0: more companies have budgets for podcast advertising than they did six years ago too.
1: Yeah. And I think over those six years, a lot of new startups have come out and written into their DNA is we're going to go you know, advertise on podcasts.
0: Yeah, exactly. So when you're out hiring for your your team what kind of credentials how do you hire people
1: i have hired very haphazardly i've sort of let fate take its it's take the wheel i'll give you an example my wife and i were uh, this is pre-covid we're on a train in boston on a subway ride that we're on the t in boston heading to uh, the house of blues to see the Rack and tours and as a side note the show is incredible jack white knows how to put on a good show and the Rack and tours tour that year was just insane. And we're on a subway car and we're in the corner, back corner. And there's these two, I can tell from their accent, they're Midwestern. I grew up in the Midwest and, and, and there are these two older guys, probably in their late fifties, early sixties. And they have this college age girl trapped in a corner and they're peppering her with questions. And she's, you can tell the smiles are polite, but they're forced. And my wife and I, sort of edge our way closer to her and we were listening and waiting for an opportunity to sort of help her out if we need to and we heard her mention that she is she's in grad school and they said oh what are you doing are you an education major because of course all old white men think that (laughs) women who are in grad school have to be going to be a teacher and uh, no she's actually in for history she said and my ears perk up because you know at the basic level lore is a history show yeah and uh, they said, Oh, what do you study? American history. And she said, no, I specialize in medieval witch trial manuscripts. And that was the moment where I just sort of leaned forward and put my hand out. And I said, Hey, I'm Aaron. Do you listen to podcasts? And that's how I met Allie. And she is one of my five teammates and does insane work. Her you know, graduate school studies were about medieval witch trial manuscripts, the documents that came out of these trials and court documents and all that. And she's been invaluable. She's It's amazing. So So that's how I meet. That's how I meet my folks.
0: And she's full-time now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. She's full-time.
0: I I bet that story would be fun to hear from her perspective as well.
1: I know, right? Yeah. I think she was, I would hope she was grateful for the chance meeting, but she, you know, she's, she just, she loves the job. She tells me frequently she can't believe this is what she does for a living. And yeah, basically I pay people to research and write. That's very cool. It's, it's very cool. Yeah.
0: So has the pandemic affected lore slash grim and mild in any way?
1: You know, it's funny. I decided like February of 2014, maybe even January, that I was going to bundle everything up into a company. I was going to hire people who are, you know, needing to be hired, like Carl, who helped research and write unobscured. I wanted him full time. He's an old friend and I wanted to get him back from the West Coast to the East Coast. And so I, I leased office space. I bought furniture. I went to article.com, you know, an old sponsor. And I just furnished the place out, lots of desks and built a sound studio in there. Got it set up where three people can sit down and do roundtable conversations. And we were ready to go. And then we were ready to launch in March. And I'm like, all let right, right, let's, let's move in. And March was when the world shut down. And so for the last year plus, one or two people have been going into the office and working in separate rooms with masks on. And, you know, Allie doesn't live, she she lives in the area, but she lives far enough away that she's just been working from home the entire time. And I go in from time to time just to see how the office is doing and, and if I have to have an in-person meeting. But but yeah, it just sort of shut down these exciting launch plans. We've got our show artwork on the wall. You can walk through and sit down and have conversations about the story in an episode or where are we going with the series and and just have them right there. And we we don't get to do that right now. And that's been frustrating, but... I'm amazed at how easily Zoom filled in for a lot of those functions. You know, I mean my, my kids have to do school over Zoom. We're not sending them to school. It has proved itself to be a, a valuable tool for us. But yeah, it, it would have been nice to meet in person. For lore though, I, I sort of, I, I keep it compartmentalized. Lore on its own, I've got researchers digging in to future episodes. And I just write every day and I record from home in my booth where I'm at right now. And it, I know COVID disrupted a lot and I, I don't want to downplay it at all for a lot of people's lives. But for me as a work at home guy, it didn't really impact a lot of my life. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm in the same I, boat there.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, I bet you probably experienced the same thing. Yeah.
0: No, there really hasn't been. Other than I now go to yoga over Zoom, Right, literally nothing else in my life changed other than I didn't have to see people as often, which is totally fine with me.
1: Yeah, I'm an introvert. So um, not seeing people has been, it's been right. All right. I'm fine with that.
0: Do you have any anxiety about that changing and expectations going back to to in-person meetings?
1: I don't. I know a lot of people that do and I feel for them. I've learned over the years that I'm sort of a chameleon when it comes to the introvert extrovert thing. Having to go and I can go back and it sounds like I'm bragging. I'm not trying to brag, but like you go through enough press things for TV shows or a book tour, you go do live shows, you get really good at flipping a switch and turning that extrovert part of your brain on and it burns a lot of fuel and I go to my hotel room and crash when I'm done, but I've gotten good at flipping back and forth. I'm not as worried about going back out in public because for me it's you know, it's always been an uncomfortable thing. I'll just flip the switch and I'll do my thing and then I can turn it off and go back to the hotel room. But yeah, I know people who are they're worried
0: is it is it mansplaining if a man explains something to a man maybe, this comes maybe? up this comes up now and then i i do have a lot of introverts on this show but an introvert is really good at social stuff for limited periods of time and what makes you an introvert is how long it takes you to recharge after yeah being
1: on and how you recharge yeah you, an introvert is it alone. Re- yeah, it, it, introverts need to be alone to recharge. That's how they fuel back up. My wife's an extrovert, and so she fuels up by being around people. Let's have some friends over. That's a that's an oasis for her. For me, that's a, a hell that I have to get mm-hmm. through. And and then we'll then I'll recharge afterwards.
0: Yeah, I grew up with a a very extroverted mother who did not understand mm-hmm. why I need why I needed alone time after just half an hour of hanging out with people.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm with you.
0: So. I'm going to switch over to some psychology questions. <laughs> Do you consider yourself neurotypical?
1: I will tell you a couple of things. I have a bachelor's degree in psychology, and I don't know what that question means. Okay. For honesty. Yeah.
0: So, and it's a word that I've heard more, uh, more recently, but like the idea of uh, neurotypical are people who don't have problems with things like ADHD or autism just function as normal human beings. People on the autism spectrum would be neuroatypical or neurodiverse.
1: Gotcha. I I the biggest challenge that I have is I can be dyslexic with numbers. That's the and it doesn't pop up all the time. I notice it mostly when I'm that's why I use spreadsheets because if I don't use a spreadsheet I make mistakes. It's not a bad math thing. It's literally a dyslexia with numbers kind of issue. And that's the one thing that really hinders me. I have become very disciplined over the years. And so I don't really feel like there's anything personality-wise or hardwiring-wise holding my production back.
0: I ask mostly because people I know that are on the autism spectrum, and most of them very mild, just like Mm -hmm. certain social behaviors and things that have led them to get a diagnosis— But they, by and large, love research. And Mm. they love going in-depth on a topic and can compile an attention span like I will never understand. But an ability to deep dive on things, which is something I see as a prerequisite for the kind of uh, shows that you produce.
1: Yeah, I'm going to say that the people who work for me that are research-oriented, they are wired a very specific way. But they're also very socially normal. I don't feel like they, they work through any challenges on a regular basis. I think that they manage really well.
0: But like you personally, do you enjoy research?
1: I do. I do. I think the most frustrating thing about research for me these days is that I want to go so much deeper on a lot of things. And I can't because I, I know that there's a goal for every episode. We have, a you know, You can fall down every rabbit hole in the world on Wikipedia and, you know, oh, this connects to this and do that 17 times and you've lost three hours. So for me, I have to be very focused on the particular story we need to tell and just the context that helps that story. Yeah, I I love research and I don't do as much of it as I used to because I have people who do it for me. So my, my, my time spent elsewhere.
0: So a lot of your lore, especially, but it's even in the name of your production company, skews dark. Why do you have a personal attraction to things that are a little bit dark?
1: I grew up on, you know, properties like unsolved mysteries, the X-Files. I yeah, I, I think I do skew that way. I, I often tell people that where I discovered that I really wanted to tell stories was when I was a kid and my mom bought me a book from the, what was it called? The that paper catalog we would get, you know, what, like once a month in school. Scholastic Highlights? Readers Club. Oh. No, Scholastic Readers Club. And she picked me up a book of like weird but true stories that, you know, just captured my imagination. And, you know, things like people, a farmer who vanishes into a field, no you know, never to be seen again. And just, you know, and, and then to be told as a 10-year-old and this really happened, it's a true story. It just blew my mind.
0: Yeah. I, I, I can relate. It doesn't show up as much in my work as it does for you, but I definitely, as a kid, like Unsolved Mysteries, I think that was the name of that show. Yeah. I absolutely, I loved it. I loved things that left me uh, with more questions than answers. That was always a fascination of mine.
1: Yeah. I, I think that one of the things that I pulled out of that was that it's healthy to to not have answers. I think as humans, we really want to have all the answers and it's good to go looking for them. I certainly want people to figure out how to cure cancer someday. Like I want us to have answers, but I think that there's a power in mystery that not knowing the answer to something is okay and can be entertaining. And that's where I've sort of parked myself over the years.
0: Do you consider yourself a religious person? Yeah. Christian faith?
1: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Have been since, I don't know, middle school or so. Okay. Okay. (laughs)
0: I went the opposite way. I was Christian until middle school, but I feel like the idea of needing to explain the big mysteries uh, plays in a lot to like any religion and that need to have something, have an explanation for big questions that without religion, you know, where did we come from can be inexplicable. Or like the scientific community has to say there are a lot of things we just don't know. Do you think that religion for you serves to answer those questions or is it something else?
1: I'm not sure that it serves to answer that particularly. I I know, you know, lore is a, you know, creepy history storytelling podcast. But at the same time, I spend a lot of time sort of reflecting on the human Uh, not condition, but what it means to be human on humanity, right? Like how, and and we find a lot of this in folklore from culture to culture, how the things we build into our belief systems, whether it's, you know, uh, a mainline religion or it's an archaic folklore belief, like whatever that mix is, it's there to compensate for something or to explain something or to help us get through something. And that's the stuff that fascinates me. Yeah. So are you still writing novels? I'm not. There's a asterisk next to that. I, I, I wrote and self-published three of them before launching Lore. In fact, Lore was meant to be like, like an email newsletter giveaway. Hey, I'll give you these five you know, historical essays that I, I discovered this stuff while researching my novels if you just sign up for my mailing list. But over the years and deepening my relationship with iHeart, I've been able to dig into the fiction realm. So last year, I came on late to the project, but last year we launched a show in October called 13 Days of Halloween, which was sort of, sorry, sort of, it's it was like a hybrid of anthology style storytelling. Every episode was a new story, but it was all wrapped up in a larger meta story. And the idea was that you were you were a visitor to a hotel and the caretaker was taking you from room to room and introducing you to the other guests at the hotel. And each one had a story to tell you the the caretaker was voiced by Keegan Michael Key, which was insane to watch him perform and do that. I didn't have a lot of creative input in the show. To get to pick some of the stories and and kill some of the stories. But this year where we've already started, you know, pre-production on, on the second season of that. And I'm a lot more involved in it this time around. I've concepted the season and instructed the writers on where to go with it. And we're having fun. I've also got an audio fiction show coming out late summer, early fall, probably August or so that I can't talk about, but it has an insane cast. And it's a, it's my first like full production audio drama. I came up with the story, pitched it to a friend who writes screenplays for audio dramas, and they wrote the actual, I don't know how to write, like that specific language of screenplays, that's not something I know how to do. So sure. they did that for me and and gave the thing an incredible life. And so that's that's been a labor of love for about a year and a half. And we're hoping to get that out in August. And then you know, there'll be more fiction from me after that. But I think it's going to be in the audio space at this point. I, I My literary agent would like me to write fiction. They would specifically like me to write like middle grade, slightly younger than YA. I just... For the time involved for the ROI, for me, it's so much better to do audio and, and it's where people are at. Audio is where people are at. Audio book sales are so much higher than print or ebook sales because you can listen in the car on the way to work, or you can listen, you know, on a subway. So anyway, all that to say, I don't write novels anymore, but I'm, I'm still working in fiction. So
0: one of the things that happens when anything gets really popular is you get more criticism. People tend to be harsher, the more popular something is. Have you dealt with kind of the pitfalls of fame in that regard?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, it's interesting you bring that up. And I don't know how closely this relates, but this if this feels right to me. So again, I, I launched Lore six years ago and I, I was making it up as I went. And so that meant that I recorded episode one in, a, in an old New England house on the third floor in, an, in a room that had no straight walls. They were all like angular because it was in the eaves of the house. Yeah. Horsehair plaster is really hard and reflective with sound. Hardwood floors, the furniture was from Ikea, so really hard com- composite wood with cheap plastic veneer. Everything was reflective. It was like shining a light into a, a fun house at a circus. And, and then I talked into a microphone that was between me and my glass iMac screen. So, like, acoustically, I did everything wrong. And that's why, from the very beginning, there was music in the background, because it's like taking a bad photo and putting it in Instagram and adding a filter, and it sounds okay or looks okay. Those early episodes of Lore, if you listen to episode one and then listen to episode 167, which came out last week, they're night and day in quality. And, and I also, I was learning to be a narrator. I'd never done it before. All those pieces. I was learning to edit audio. For a, a number of years, lore grew and there weren't complaints about those old episodes. But I'm watching numbers on places like Spotify where I can see how many people start listening to the show but don't follow the show. They don't tap the subscribe button. And there's a, a big gap there. And my fear has been, that's like a nonverbal, non-expressed, complaint about the quality of the early episodes. So just today I launched a new, I I basically made a new episode called episode one, same title, but after the title in parentheses, it says remastered. And it's me recording the same script, but on this mic in this booth today with this voice and this experience and then editing it and producing it with Chad's music and all these, you know, it's a modern version of what episode one could be. I didn't want to take the old one away because I got a lot of hardcore fans that are super attached to them. Uh, But I wanted to provide something that new people who find the show for the first time and they want to start at episode one, they have an option to take the high quality path. That's me sort of responding to that. I I take an attack with criticism that is, if 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 there's no pattern to it, if it's rare in a category, you can ignore it. But if it pops up frequently about the same thing then you should probably take a notice of it. Early on, I had some bad reviews that said, your music volume is way too loud compared to your voiceover volume. And I thought, you're dumb. I know what I'm doing. I didn't, but I, you know, and so I ignored them, but I watched a number of them hit iTunes. It was iTunes at the time. And so I went in and I lowered my music volume and I've never had complaints ever since. So yeah, I, I look for patterns in complaints and if it's blowing up, I'll take care of it. it
0: sounds to me like you take all criticism constructively unless you're just, Letting it pass it doesn't it doesn't affect you uh,
1: negatively i th- I think it's human to be affected by that stuff I've heard Adam Savage refer to reading the reviews of your own stuff as cutting, and it is in a way you're harming yourself when you when you put that in your brain, but we also want to hear what people have to say yeah it's a weird place to live
0: i I went back and read reviews of my other podcast, Overtired. I hadn't looked at it for years. Mm. And there was this one review that just went on. He said, I would give this one star, but I'm going to give them two for trying. These two people have nothing to say. They're wandering and boring. And it sounds like they haven't slept. And the show is called Overtired. I I feel like that's the point. But it was the first time I've read a bad review and just been able to laugh. Like, it didn't... I have a very thin skin. Like, I have to take... I have to step back and take a breath anytime someone criticizes me. It, like, cuts me deeper, I think, than a normal neurotypical person. So, that's... It's... Dealing with that kind of criticism, I just... I've always been a little bit grateful that my things aren't
1: so popular that I have to face that much. But... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Certainly the more popular, you know, just statistically you're going to, you're going to reach more people. And that means that same 1% or 10% just becomes a larger population and they're going to be, they're going to complain. But the, you know, the complaints that bother me the most are the people that complain about ads at podcasting, you know, <laughs> oh, your show's great, but you ruin it with ads. And I want to sit them down and, and walk them through how incredibly thoughtful I really am about my ads and how I use them compared to other podcasts. But yeah. that's one random person on the internet and I'm not going to spend my time doing that. So I've had to learn to just walk away.
0: Yeah. And those random people who, who complain about advertising very often are the same people that wouldn't pay for it right? anyway.
1: Yeah. Thank you for the free show, but boy, your ads suck, you know, and it's, it's just a, it stings a little bit.
0: But yeah. All right. Well, speaking of sponsors,
1: you want to pay the bills?
0: I do. Awesome. I'm excited to continue telling you about one of my favorite sponsors, Nebbia. They're the creators of the Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower, backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook, It's designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers who spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that saves water and is anything but ordinary. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower is Nebbia's most advanced shower yet, with twice the coverage and half the water usage of standard shower heads. Despite using 45% less water, its spray is 81% more powerful than the competition, and its atomized droplets rinse shampoo and conditioner out of even the thickest hair. With easy self-installation, Nebbia by Moen can be installed in 15 minutes or less without the need for contractors, plumbers, or broken tile. If you can change a light bulb, you can install Nebbia by Moen. It's seriously easy. I installed mine in 10 minutes and I didn't need a single tool that wasn't included in the box. I have a little plumbing experience, so I wasn't super worried to begin with, but I can report that my co-host on Overtired, Christina Warren, also installed it without a hitch, despite claiming to be 100% quote-unquote not handy. And I never used to be much of a long, hot shower person. Now I love it. Sometimes I'm brainstorming. Sometimes I just space out and revel in those atomized droplets. And the whole time, I'm using half the water I normally would. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower starts at just one ninety nine and I have a deal for Systematic listeners. The first 100 people to use the code SYSTEMATIC at Nebia.com will get 15% off all Nebia products. It's rare that Nebia offers deals like this, so don't wait to go to nebbia.com slash systematic. That's N-E-B as in boy, I-A dot slash systematic to check out what they have to offer. The first 100 people to use the code systematic when checking out will save 15% on all Nebbia products. So again, that's nebbia.com slash systematic and use that code systematic to save 15%. That brings us to some top three picks. I know that you, you don't have a hard list in front of you. We're going to wing this. Tell me the first thing that kind of springs to mind as your favorite thing right now.
1: I'll pull it out of my pocket right now. I've taken to the world of nice pocket knives a little everyday carry. And I have in my pocket, Chris Reeve, Sebenza. That's got it. You can look him up. Uh, he's a really, it's, it's a company that makes really respected, easy to use pocket knives. And it's the one that has ebony inlay on both sides, sort of a polished um, titanium on most surfaces. It's just, it's really nice. It's always in my pocket.
0: How do you spell the name of the knife?
1: Sabenza. S-E-B-E-N-Z-A. All right.
0: Is it airline safe? How big? Is no,
1: it? no, it's not. its I think the blade is probably like just under three inches. It might be like 2.98 inches or something.
0: And what's airline regulation? Isn't three inches okay?
1: Oh, I don't know. I've just assumed I can't get on a plane with a knife.
0: Yeah, no, I made that assumption. I got this great thing called the uh, the Gerber Artifact. Okay? And there's two versions of it. One of it has uh, a number 10 exacto blade that folds out of it. And oh, the wow. other one does not have any blades. So, I always assumed that if I wanted to travel with this thing, I had to get the one without the exacto blade. But then right. I came to learn that a number 10 exacto blade is totally okay. At least it was at the time that I looked it up.
1: That's amazing. Yeah, I've spent the last, you know, 14 months not traveling. I I just, I don't want to, it's not a cheap knife and I don't want to have it taken away, but I'll have to look into that because I'd like to, I like having something with me to open things.
0: Let's clarify for our listeners that not a cheap knife is (laughs) over $400.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's fancy. Yeah.
0: You've really made it. (laughs)
1: i I blew every penny i earned on that night
0: (laughs) (laughs) saved up for years
1: that's right all right um yeah number two i will tell you i have just wrapped up i wish there was a ton more of it a a nintendo switch game called immortals phoenix rising have you heard of it no i'm not a gamer okay i would say it, it is it feels a lot like zelda breath of the wild it's an open world you know cartoon character that runs around and battles creatures with weapons. I really love its simple system for you're not collecting like a thousand different swords and then having to upgrade each one. You just upgrade your sword ability. And no matter what sword you use, it has that power. It's really, it's been a really fun game. It's all Greek mythology based. So I had a lot of fun with that. It's got some comical writing to it. It's been a really fun game. So I wish there was more.
0: Now, is having a team, has that opened up enough time was there a, a period in the growth of lore where you would never have had time to play games?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then I found that other people could do research better than me. They took on a, you know, 40 hour per episode burden and made the show better. And I was able to, for the most part, I spend my spare time focusing on things like other shows and meetings and more meetings. But every now and then I get to play a video game. That's nice.
0: Yeah. I have time to play games and somehow I don't. I play... just don't like it? I like threes on my phone. Yeah, like I still have a, threes. <laughs> I saw Christina on we, we For us, it's a fidget toy almost. We just almost absentmindedly yeah. play threes while we do other things. Yeah. but But as far as more involved games with storylines and even levels... I just, Mm -hmm. I lose interest very quickly.
1: If you want a game that we can consider this number three, or we can consider this a tangent to number two, but you want a game that you can just kill time with on your iPad or your iPhone, although it's small on the iPhone, it's a game called Polytopia.
0: Taking a note. Tell me about it.
1: It is polygon based, whatever you, that tilted 3d worldview, but it's essentially like civilization. Like you build a city and then you that city can create a soldier and you send them out to to take over a campsite that nobody else has gotten to yet or defeat your enemy and take their city from them. But on a super high level, it's not, don't think like civilization where you have to dig down and do all these crazy things. It's a very basic game and I can play a game in half an hour and it's great. My wife and I are watching TV or killing time during a meeting, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah.
0: My girlfriend is a card player and mm. has multiple times tried to get me into Settlers of Catan. Yeah. And even that, I don't... There's something wrong with me. I talk <laughs> to so many people who talk about like games enriching their lives in so many different ways. And I had, I've had multiple episodes that were with people specifically related to the video game industry. Mm. To try to get them to explain to me how to get into gaming so that I can try to achieve this level of satisfaction that other people seem to have we'll leave it at that though
1: and it's just not working huh uh,
0: it just doesn't matter enough to me to really <laughs> put in the effort for me and that's fine like coding i think i get the same satisfaction from coding and and you know writing complex regular expressions that other people get from playing video games i think it has yeah. this i think it triggers the same reactions in my brain for me
1: yeah that's and that's the thing i i don't really have a lot of Quote hobbies outside of work because I took a hobby and I turned it into my job and I it doesn't I've heard people say that means you have to find a new hobby and I don't think that's true I think that I just turned my hobby into a job and I now I get to do the thing that I love every day and I, I still work my ass off but it's doing something for myself that I love and it works out for me so if coding is what trips the endorphins for you like that, that you just lean into that man yeah well and I turned.
0: You know, like my bills are paid month to month by selling apps and, yeah. you know, and that involves a lot of like customer support and other kind of tangential things. But I really did manage if, if there's a measure of success for an independent developer that basically says you're doing what you love and you're paying your bills, then by that That's measure, I, I succeeded and I've never felt like a failure. Right. I just also don't have a retirement fund and that's yeah. a goal right now. I'm 42. Yeah. It's time to it's time to start preparing <laughs> for retirement.
1: Yeah, I hear you. I remember being in design and I did not earn a lot and I worried, yeah, I can pay the bills. I can hit my goals barely, but what's uh what does 65 look like for me? It was rough for a long time. That's awesome to hear. That's working out for you like that.
0: I just took a job with Oracle.
1: Uh-huh.
0: I'm going to be I I had a couple of guests over the last year that talked about this, the idea of developer advocate, developer relations, like the people who basically, they're almost hype men for hype people for mm-hmm. like a big tech company and interface with the developers who use the company's products. Right. And I immediately said that would be... That's like exactly what I'm qualified to do. And then I did an interview with a puppet. My friend Victor has a, he's starting a little video podcast where puppets interview real people. And I was interviewed by a puppet. And as a result of that interview, indirectly, I suddenly had a job offer from a big tech company to do exactly what I had envisioned. So... That's amazing. Things did fall into place. It's, yeah. Anyway, we're going to call Polytopia a side pick and see if you can come up with a number three.
1: Number three. Went through a phase for a couple of months where I wore one of those Aura rings. Have you seen those? No. O-U-R-A. But it's a Bluetooth-enabled ring that you wear, and it tracks your heart rate. It's 90% made for sleep tracking to know how well you're sleeping. And if you tag your activities and your diet and things like that, you can actually find ways to sleep better. Because that's my, if I have one problem that I want to fix, it's I just don't always sleep the best. And I would like to fix that. Yeah,
0: this is, I did not know these things existed. So I'm browsing a webpage right now.
1: How much do those cost? I want to say it was like 300 bucks, but there's no ongoing services. You know, it's just, you buy it and it's yours. So I was cool with that. Do you have an Apple watch? I do. I wear it for my mornings. So it's on my wrist while I write. And then I go for a run, which is on a treadmill because I live in, sorry, I live in New England and it's, it's crappy most of the time out there. So I run on a treadmill and then after I've showered and changed, I switch over to a mechanical watch. Huh. Interesting.
0: I I wear mine mostly for the purpose of sleep tracking. So if I charge my, Have you found
1: that- is it good at that for you? I've gotten frustrated with wearing a ring on that finger because I basically mirror my you know, like, wedding ring on my left hand. And so the same ring finger on my right hand, I'm wearing that and it just bothered me. It got in the way. I'd love to use the watch for that.
0: I have, so I don't have one of the latest models that actually has like the blood oxygen sensors and everything. The built-in Apple tools do not do a great job. There is an app called, I think it's, Better sleep or it's an, I'll find it. I'll put a link in the show notes, even if I can't remember the name of it right now, but it does an amazing job of Mm -hmm. watching for movement and uh, pulse rate and being able to determine based on different thresholds when you are in deep sleep, when you're in light sleep and when you are awake Mm -hmm. and can give you a graph in the morning showing like a full, your last 8 hours how much of it was actual deep sleep and how much of it was fitful and you know give you actual statistics in the morning which the default apple tools do not do a great job of
1: no they don't do you have to launch the app on your watch before you go to sleep
0: nope, nope. it the oh, app actually nice. runs on your phone and it just pulls all of the data that the watch is collecting anyway oh yeah so you exactly. don't have to think about it at all
1: that's good. All right. I'll wait for your show notes and then I'll, I'll look into it. Yeah.
0: Let me. I should have just, while I was talking, I should have been doing this, but <laughs> it's right here on my phone. It is called, it's called Auto Sleep. Okay. Yeah. Very highly cool. recommend it.
1: I will check it out. Yeah. I'll check cool. that out.
0: All right. People shouldn't have any problem finding you on the internet.
1: Don't tell them where I'm at. No, I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We've got aaronmanke.com. Anywhere else you want to mention?
1: You know, grimandmild.com um and not an ampersand is the production site and there's links to all the shows and descriptions and all that stuff there and i'm on all the social stuff as a m a h n k e yeah most of the social stuff i'm on instagram and twitter and clubhouse now i've been playing around with that i i don't even know what clubhouse is it I, this is the best way i can explain it you've been to a conference before right where you go sure. and like wwdc right you go yeah. And it takes place over the course of a day or two days or three days, but there's a schedule and you can go to this room at this time and you can hear somebody talk about you know, this type of developing. And then you can go across the hall after that one's done and you can catch somebody talking about um, app sales. Clubhouse is an audio-only version in an app form of that. You open it up and at any given moment, there are sessions going on around the world with topics listed. You can tell the app what you're interested in, so it only suggests sessions to you that... Fit your needs or your interests, and then you you just tap you know on the room and you go in and you listen. You, it's like listening to talk radio, but it's a limited run, like an hour long session that somebody has set up. A lot of people do Q and A. I've gone in and I've done some Q and A before about you know production stuff and storytelling and whatnot. It's interesting. Yeah, That's that interesting. sounds cool. Yeah,
0: random yeah. aside. Last year at Macstock, which is uh, a, a grassroots attempt to. Fill the void that MacWorld left when it closed. They did. It was virtual, and they had this cool app uh, where you would log in with your web browser, put on a pair of headphones, and it would give you like an an audio space. And the closer you moved your avatar to other people, the louder their voices would get. And you <laughs> could like huddle with people and have private conversations while it'd be like you're in a room with uh, groups of people talking. And you could hear like the murmur around you. And as you walked closer to things, you would get, you you would pick up more at the conversation and then you could have like speakers in like a room and you could go into the room and hear the speaker. And it was really cool. I think there's a, I think there's a real space for that, especially pandemic era.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It does sound in a lot of ways like a clubhouse. So maybe it's uh, worth checking that out. It might be invite only right now, but I'm sure Somebody in your network has has already been on there. Yeah, I'm sure I can find something.
0: All right. Thanks for taking the time today. I know you're a busy guy.
1: Happy to. This was fun.
0: Is it driving you nuts that I'm typing on a mechanical keyboard while podcasting?
1: That So that's a thing that I don't get. The, are you talking about like the build your own, replace the keys? Yeah. yeah. Like the popular thing that kids are all doing these days. Yeah. I don't get that. I don't get that hobby. Thinking cool. more about
0: the noise, as a professional podcaster, it's got to bug you when people adjust their mic while they're talking or type on keyboard.
1: Uh, you know, look, it's your podcast. You put out whatever you want. <laughs> I my my setup in my booth is an old MacBook that's running like old GarageBand, like five six or something, because I like the way it looks and acts better. I added on the new one because it can the new one can open the old ones in the booth. I use an iPad, so it's all silent. I just that's where my script is, and I just scroll through silently on the iPad. All my scripts are written in pages and they sync through iCloud, iCloud Drive. So I literally, like I can be typing, I finish a section for the day, I leave that open on my desktop and I pick up my iPad, open it, and I get the little handoff at the bottom and I tap that and it opens a script and I walk in the booth and record it. So uh, no typing noises.
0: (laughs) All right, thanks again. Yeah. And thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll see you in a week. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Systematic. Check out more episodes at SystematicPod.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Find me as TT scoff on all social platforms and follow Systematic at Systemcast, S-Y-S-T-M-C-A-S-T on Twitter. Thanks for listening.